Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, our old-fashioned electrical grid basically has three nodes. Generators or power plants, local substations, which are connected to power plants by long-distance transmission lines. Those are the things that sometimes cause fires. And then homes and businesses that use the power and they get their electricity from local substations over a network of power distribution lines, those utility poles. Now, this grid design was good for over 100 years, but new technologies, particularly solar and battery storage, allow local buildings to generate and store power more efficiently and safely. We call this distributed generation as opposed to centralized generation. Now, one way to do this is with solar on residential and commercial rooftops. Generally, we call that behind the meter solar. Another way for bigger systems is solar on unused spaces, parking lots, brown fields, and warehouse rooftops. Now, that's generally referred to as wholesale distributed generation. Now, wholesale distributed generation makes terrific environmental and economic sense. And to help along with this, to proliferate it, the Clean Coalition was established in 2009 to make wholesale DG possible. They're advocating for a modern, efficient power system that takes advantage of the latest technologies to provide cleaner, more affordable, and more reliable energy. And my guest on this week's show is Craig Lewis. Craig's the executive director of the Clean Coalition. And I've known Craig for almost 15 years, maybe longer, going back to his work at Greenvolts, one of the pioneering solar concentrator companies. So welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you very much, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, great, great. Well, I, I gave a little intro on the Clean Coalition, but it'd be great if you could explain to our listeners a little bit more about what you guys do. Sure. The Clean Coalition is a nonprofit organization with a mission to accelerate the transition to renewable energy and a modern grid. And we do that through policy efforts as well as what we call program efforts. And those are activities that we do in collaboration with municipalities, utilities, community choice aggregation jurisdictions, and occasionally with commercial parties as well. And almost everything that the Clean Coalition does is focused on the distribution grid. So in your intro, you talked about the electricity system. And I would just add one more important distinction there is that there is a difference between the transmission system, which is your high-voltage power lines that travel over the steel power towers, so that's the transmission system versus the distribution grid, which is lower voltage and travels over the wood power poles. So if you look outside and you see wood power poles, generally speaking, you're on the distribution grid, you're close to where people live and work because nobody wants to live anywhere near a transmission line. If you see a you know, bunch of steel transmission towers, then you're almost for sure looking at a part of the transmission system. And those distinctions are very important because the transmission grid is required to get power that's generated remotely, usually long distances away from where people live and work, you know, all the way to wherever people live and work, which is where you actually need electricity. And the distribution grid, of course, is where you are basically in the communities and neighborhoods where we live and work. So I just wanted to make that distinction because the Clean Coalition is really focused on this accelerating the transition to renewable energy and a modern grid, with most of our focus being on the distribution grid, close to where people live and work, and with the intention that ultimately 
we can get about 25% of total energy consumed from local renewable energy sources. And local renewable energy sources can be on either side of the meter. The Clean Coalition, we do a lot of work with respect to wholesale distributed generation, which means interconnections on the utility side of the meter, often referred to as front of meter. But we also do a lot of work in with respect to microgrids, where the interconnections are behind the meter serving on-site load, primarily, you know, in a net metering fashion. And so, you know, for us, front of meter, behind the meter, it's all great, and we focus our efforts on those areas, those opportunities that are within the distribution grid. So that kind of raises a question, you know, in urban areas, there's not a lot of room for a significant amount of PV on the distribution grid, maybe suburban areas or farmlands it is. So you mentioned there's 25, we can generate 25% of the energy locally. What's limiting that? Is it just a matter of space? It is, yeah. In California, for example, where most of the local renewables will be in the form of solar, we're going to be on rooftops, parking lots, parking structures, you know, when we're in urban and suburban areas. And you're right. If you're in downtown San Francisco, you're only going to be able to get enough solar sited on rooftops, parking lots, parking structures to pick up, you know, maybe 10% of your your total load. And Clean Coalition's done a lot of work in San Francisco, and we can get to about 10% of the total load even in an urban area like San Francisco. If you're in a more suburban area, of course, you can get that 10% up to the 25%. And if you're in a more rural area where there's a little bit more space available, then, of course, you can get those percentages up much higher to 50%. Some places you get to 100% if you wanted to, if you want to combine enough energy storage and other distributed energy resources along with the solar, you could achieve 100%. But on average, we find that for you know local renewables can provide about 25% the entire consumption, and so we use 25% as our as our overall global target. And yet, getting to 25%, of course, uh, getting to 25% from local renewables, of course, means that you're still going to get 75% of your energy from remote central generation that's going to come over transmission. And we think that you know, within a decade or two, all of that will also be renewable. So, you know, Clean Coalition believes we will get to 100% renewables with 25% of it coming from local renewables. Okay, cool. So, what are some of the programs and projects that you've worked on over the years, in addition to these great policies you're putting in effect? Sure. So, just to touch on the policy side, because we've been around since 2009, as you mentioned in the introduction. And we started really as a policy-focused organization, and that was a carryover from my work on Steve Wesley's gubernatorial campaign in California, which was in the 2006 election cycle. Steve Wesley, who was then the controller for the state of California, was running for governor. And I think, Barry, that might actually be the first time we met. I think I'd reached out to you for some support, support for Steve Wesley way back when. If I recall, I think you gave us support. <laughs> yeah, we did. I'm, I'm a big supporter of Steve and kind of you know, a friend. We go back, put solar on his roof, and I had the honor of having Steve serve on the board of directors at Akina Solar. So, and then I just love the way he was able to build his venture group very, very successfully. Yes. My transition, I was in the telecommunications world, and my transition into forming the Coin Coalition actually started with Steve Wesley. I was his energy policy lead for 
this gubernatorial campaign to establish a policy platform around energy. And unfortunately, Steve did not make it in the governor's seat. He, he lost in a tight election in the primary in June of 2006. And I went off to Plan B, which was to become a renewable energy project developer. And I lived in that world for a couple of years three years and got the very first solar project through the California Renewables Portfolio Standard solicitation process. So from start to finish, I saw the very first solar project go through the RPS program. And then, uh, you know, as I worked on more projects, I realized that the world was really a policy landscape was so tilted toward the old way of doing business with central generation, mostly fossil-based, you know, coming over long transmission lines. I realized that we really needed to get some policy innovation into play, and I formed the Clean Coalition in January 2009 to start by bringing policy innovation into play. And we started with really focusing on procurement and interconnection policy innovation. To this day, we are still very focused on that on our policy side. One of the big wins we had on the policy front along the way has been in regards to distribution resources planning. We spent about five years battling through CED. We got into the IPER report, which is their annual report that talks about policies that should be coming down the pike. We were able to move that into legislation and then navigate it through the implementation process of the California Public Utilities Commission. And now utilities, because of all that effort, led by the Clean Coalition but supported by lots of other parties, we now have utilities, investor and utilities in California, that have to publicize, have to make public the distribution grid details, including maps that show where the distribution lines run, and you can click on the lines and see how much interconnection hosting capacity is available. So if you're a solar developer, you can figure out, is this a good place to put solar or is it not? And if it's not, it means that you're going to have a really huge interconnection upgrade cost and it, the economics are not going to work for you. So yeah, distribution yeah. resources plans are really fundamental and a huge victory on the policy front. I know your question was on the program side. So let me get to that. You know, we've done a lot of what I would consider to be successful program action, ranging from feed and tariff designs for a number of utilities and CCAs and municipalities. The most recent one was for the city of San Diego in kind of as they reached their last go, no-go decision in terms of moving forward with a community choice aggregation jurisdiction. They wanted to see if San Diego Gas and Electric would actually move forward and, and put to achieve the city's objectives for getting a lot of local solar and other distributed energy resources. So they engaged the Clean Coalition to do a solar siting survey to figure out how much solar energy we get into the city of San Diego on rooftops, parking lots, parking structures. And they also engaged us to do a feed and tariff design with the hope that SDG&E would move that forward. SDG&E did not agree to move it forward, and that was one of the determining factors in the city of San Diego deciding to move forward with the CCA. Yeah, I'm glad we're going with CCAs. It's, it's kind of like the only way to, to really get our electric cost under control, especially once we can kind of chip away at some of those public charge and difference adjustments.
governance. So huh. yeah, it's, and and the CCAs can implement procurement programs like feed-in tariffs. So now the city of San Diego, through its CCA, will be able to implement this feed-in tariff that we designed for the city of San Diego. And I, I wanted to mention the the feed-in tariff design, the San Diego feed-in tariff design in particular, because it's freely available on the Clean Coalition website. So jurisdictions that are interested in a state-of-the-art feed-in tariff don't have to look any further than the the San Diego feed-in tariff design that the Clean Coalition did last year. In addition to what I've mentioned, we have provided support for various jurisdictions, municipalities, utilities, etc., and commercial entities to do RFPs, requests for proposals, to get solar and storage and microgrids onto their properties. You know, a great example of that is in Palo Alto, which I know is in your neck of the woods. Barry and, and used to be in my neck of the woods too, but I live in Santa Barbara now. But Palo Alto engaged the Clean Coalition to design an RFP process and documentation to get solar on top of the city-owned parking structures. So if you go to the city of Palo Alto and you drive up to the top of most of their, they have five city-owned parking structures, four of them now are covered with solar on top. And they also, at the same time as we, uh, when we designed this RFP, we also designed it to get a whole bunch of electric vehicle charging infrastructure put in place while everybody was out there mucking around with the electricity system. Just make sure you got all the conduits in place for a whole bunch of EV charging infrastructure. And as part of the same RFP process, we were able to award uh, the, the the solar projects to a an entity that also was willing to put in 120 level two EV charging ports at the same time across these five parking structures. So we were able to get a huge win in terms of local renewables and also at the same time get a whole bunch of upgrades for accommodating electric vehicle charging. All right, Craig, so let's talk about power outages and microgrids and, and how you see these microgrids going in um, based on the Clean Coalition's recommendations. Sure. Yeah, one of my favorite topics. You want me to go free form or you have some specific questions for me? No, go free form. Keep it concise so we can, you know, so I can ask some other things. I want to also try and cover value of resilience. So fire away. And one of the questions I have, which is put in my note is, you know, when I look at microgrids, I mean, I have a big solar system on my house and my neighbor doesn't have one. And I'd like to give some of my power to him, but I can't legally do it. So I don't know how that works with network of commercial buildings. Maybe you only can do it on a campus-wide basis, but that's the kind of thing I'm looking to get answers for. Sure. Yeah. Well, the Clean Coalition is very focused on microgrids nowadays, and we do that in the form of of both microgrids, standard microgrids, which would generally serve a single site, and also in the form of community microgrids, which aim to serve entire communities. And the work we're doing on, I'll start with community microgrids. I think that they're a little bit more aligned with the Clean Coalition's ultimate vision. Community microgrids are essentially a new approach to designing and operating the electric grid and doing it in a manner with significant levels of local renewable energy and balancing that with lots of local energy storage and other distributed energy resources. The Clean Coalition has a couple of significant community microgrid systems that we have designed. The biggest one that is publicly available is in Long Island, New York, and came as a consequence of the Hurricane Sandy disaster that hit them a handful of years ago. 
and that community microgrid is actually not only accommodating a whole bunch of local solar to come into place and local energy storage as well, it has set the stage for an unintended opportunity, which is to accommodate 90 megawatts of offshore wind, which is now being uh, deployed and is going to interconnect to what's called the East Hampton substation, which is the, the core substation at the heart of the Long Island community microgrid. That particular project has lots of information on the Clean Coalition website. It was initially designed under a grant from the New York Prize. So there's lots of documentation on the Clean Coalition website for folks who want to dig into that one. In addition, the Clean Coalition is working very extensively in the Santa Barbara region, which is one of the reasons that I moved my family to Santa Barbara about a year and a half ago. I grew up in Santa Barbara, so this region is very near and dear to my heart. And when Santa Barbara got hit with the Thomas fire and then got hit with the subsequent debris flows, which you know, were mostly happened in Montecito, which is an area you know in Santa Barbara, I got a very heightened awareness about the need to bring lots of renewables-driven resilience to the Santa Barbara region. And we're doing that in the form of the Goleta Load Pocket Community Microgrid, which aims to provide 100% resilience, renewables-driven resilience to what's called the Goleta Load Pocket, which is a 70-mile stretch of Santa Barbara region, the entire portion of Santa Barbara County that is served by Southern California Edison. And it stretches from this point conception to Lake Casitas, which might not mean that anything, those two places might not really mean anything to people who are not from here, but that's 70 miles of coastline with the cities of Goleta, Santa Barbara, and Carpinteria being the major load centers within it. This entire Goleta load pocket, the 70-mile stretch, has a single point of interconnection to the transmission system, and right now we get the vast majority of our energy from the transmission system. So it, it all comes through what's called the Goleta substation, and that's why this is called the Goleta load pocket. There's only one transmission and distribution substation, so you got the steel power towers coming in and you got the wood towers coming out. That single transmission and distribution substation, the Goleta substation, is served by a single pathway of transmission lines that come up from Ventura, 40 miles away, right through the middle of mountainous, treacherous terrain that is at the heart of the fire risk zone, landslide zone, and earthquake zone. So the Santa Barbara region, the Goleta Load Pocket, is extremely vulnerable to transmission grid outages, as well as potentially distribution grid outages as well. We're hit regularly with public safety power shutoffs. And Clean Coalition has done a very significant analysis to determine that we need 200 megawatts of additional solar and 400 megawatt hours of additional energy storage in order to provide 100% resilience to that transmission, that very vulnerable transmission line going down or that transmission connection going down. So the Goleta Load Pocket Community Microgrid, there's lots of details on the Clean Coalition website about it. One of the major kind of sub-initiatives we have going on within the Goleta Load Pocket is in with the Santa Barbara Unified School District, which is the primary district here. They've got 21 schools, and we are helping them to get solar microgrids on all of those school campuses and ensuring that they all have resilience for when we do have grid outages, whether it's from a public safety power shutdown off or whether it's from a real disaster, which when you have the real disaster is when your grid's going to be down for super long periods. And at the same time, 
getting those solar microgrids in place. We're also getting significant electric vehicle charging infrastructure to the campuses as well, and making sure that the communities that are served by all those schools have a place to charge their electric vehicles as they transition into this you know, electric vehicle future and hopefully help accelerate that future for folks who otherwise wouldn't have access to a, an EV charger at night, for example, when the school doesn't need it. The, the school district wants to make sure that people who live in their communities can have a place to charge their cars at night when the school district doesn't need those chargers. Yeah, boy, it's one thing that happens. I mean, we obviously want to move towards electrification, electric vehicles, electric heating, but when the power goes out, then it's like, you know, we're all living in Gilligan's Island, so having uh, the ability to charge your car and heat your house from a microgrid becomes really important. But it's expensive. So on your website, I saw you did some work on a concept called the value of resilience, which kind of reminds me of some of the old value of solar analyses that were done. What's the value of resilience? Yeah, well, the value of resilience is is very much aligned with the energy show that you did a couple of weeks ago, Barry, talking about, you know, the myth, I think it was titled something to the effect of the myth of, you know, whole house backup <laughs> power. And so the value of resilience, we actually, our initiative is called Value of Resilience 123. And the 123 means that the loads at any site are divided into three allocations, tier one, These are the critical loads. So the Tier 1 loads are loads that you absolutely have to keep online 100% of the time. These are mission-critical and life-sustaining loads. The Tier 2 are the loads that are their priority loads. In other words, you will keep them on as long as you can do so without threatening the ability to keep your Tier 1 critical loads on. And then Tier 3 loads are everything else, and you're not going to pay a premium for Tier 3 loads. If the utility says we're going to have a grid outage and you don't have enough solar and storage you know, in any given moment to keep your Tier 3 loads on, it's fine. Yeah, you know what? I, I love that. I lo- Craig, I love that one, two, three concept because that's a discussion that we have in another way with our residential and commercial backup power customers. It's like, what is it that you really need? And what is it that's kind of a, a luxury and, and that may actually be a big power consumer? So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And really, I mean, with the costs and the energy density of batteries right now, you can kind of handle one at night, but not two or three at night. During the day, you got a lot more power from solar, so you can manage. Yeah. And actually, what we've found as a general rule, Barry, and we think that this is going to proliferate as a pretty standard methodology, is that you know a typical premise, whether it's a residential or a commercial or any other type of entity, on average, you're going to have about 10% of your average, your typical load is going to be tier one. An additional 15% will be tier two. So between the two of those, right, 25% is either tier one or tier two. And then the remaining 75% is tier three. You can turn it off and nobody's going to die. And so the way that we have found, especially here in the Santa Barbara region, we've done pretty deep analysis in terms of how much solar and storage do we need in order to keep 10% of the load on indefinitely and the majority of the Tier 2 load on for the vast majority of time and still be able to keep on a whole bunch of the Tier 3 load for a big chunk of the time as well, is that we found this really interesting ratio where if you size the solar to net zero, the site, 
And this is dependent on where you are in the world, right? Because solar resource quality matters. And this analysis that I'm going through is on the Clean Coalition website. And just look look up the v Value of Resilience 123 initiative, and there's a whole bunch of information about this. But what we found here in the, the area around University of California, Santa Barbara, and specifically this data is from UCSB, if you have enough solar to net zero your site and you put two hours of energy storage on it, so for example, let's say we have 100 kilowatts of solar that's needed to net zero the site, then we put 200 kilowatt hours of energy storage on it. So that's how the two-to-one ratio works. You will then have enough solar and the ability to store it and, and have that solar available to you any time of the day, right, 24 hours. You will be able to keep on at least 10% of your load for 100% of the time, indefinitely. You will also have enough energy, solar energy availability to keep on at least 15% of additional load for at least 80% of the time. So that's your tier two load. And then the other 75% of the load, you can keep on at least 25% of the time. Just to give people an easy way to think about this, if you have enough solar to net zero a site, what this means is that on an average day, you have enough solar to accommodate 100% of your load. Right? as long as you can capture that solar and spread it out throughout the day. So on an average day, you have enough solar. If you have enough solar to net zero a site, on an average day, you will have enough solar to, you will produce as many kilowatt hours on that site as you consume on that site, right? That's what net yeah. zero means. It's, you, know, you divide it, it's basically calculated over a year, but it means on the average day, that's the situation. So it shouldn't be, you know, that surprising to anybody that you can keep on under that two-to-one ratio I gave, you can keep on 10% of your load indefinitely, an additional 15% for at least 80% of the time, and, and the other 75% for at least 25% of the time. And there's a really great chart that is one of my all-time favorite charts that the Clean Coalition has created, and it's on the Clean Coalition, you know, VOR, what we call VOR123, Value of Resilience123 Initiative webpage. And I would encourage people to go study that a little bit and just, you know, really internalize it because we believe that this is the way that everybody should be thinking about resilience. And some sites, like a hospital, will tell you that, hey, our critical loads, our Tier 1 loads, they're more like about 50% of our normal loads like, okay, for a hospital, it probably is true. So, you know, we need to do some things a little differently for a hospital that's going to have to keep 50% of its normal loads on indefinitely, as opposed to the fire station, which can live with 10% of its dispatch. Yeah. I'll, I'll, have, yeah. right. I'll have to take a look and see. I'm curious. I'll dig into that. But that sounds like something that could also be appropriate for the residential and the small commercial customers they're working on. Totally appropriate for residential, because if you think about it, look, I'm a homeowner too. At my house, I can force rank my loads. What's at the top of the list? The refrigerator, right? The refrigerator is going to be less than 10% of my normal load. And guess what? I size it the way I said. I can keep my refrigerator on 100% of the time, and I can keep a whole bunch of other loads on for the vast majority of time at home on a force rank basis. So, Jack, have you put solar in storage on your home down in Santa Barbara? So, unfortunately, my home is my property is covered with trees, so I'm one of those people that has to rely on getting my renewable energy from a little bit further down the street. 
you know, in my case, I've signed up for the 100% renewable energy option. So I get 100% renewable energy. Unfortunately, in Southern California, that's in service territory. That only tells you that it's that that renewable energy is coming from somewhere within the Southern California Edison service territory, probably out in the middle of the desert, you know, hundreds of miles away from Santa Barbara. But I would be more than happy to sign up for a local renewables or local solar program if that were available and hopefully will become available through the community choice aggregation jurisdiction that is forming here in city of Santa Barbara. Yeah. Well there's a big yeah. focus on getting local renewables into you know as a big proportion of its mix. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are doing such a great job. There's no more incentive you need to get those CCAs going, you know, plus in addition just for, you know, where you live. All right. How can people get in touch with you with the Clean Coalition? Well, the easiest way is to see what you want to talk with us about by reviewing the Clean Coalition website, which is clean-coalition.org. And, you know, if somebody has something that warrants getting a hold of me directly, my email address is craig at clean-coalition.org. We also have listening into this call the Clean Coalition's communications director, whose name is Rosanna, and her email address is rosanna at clean-coalition.org. That's the best way to get a hold of the Clean Coalition, and I always appreciate it when people who are reaching out to me are pretty specific about what they're interested in talking about. And we can, you know, we're more than happy to point them to the content that the Clean Coalition has available to help them, you know, ramp up and, and accomplish a whole bunch of things that are aligned with what the Clean Coalition has already done in other places. We'll give you all the examples that we can. And, of course, we are also happy to find opportunities to get more actively involved under a some kind of formalized engagement process as well. All right. That's terrific. All right. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks, Craig, for joining us and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in if you missed any of today's show you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts 